0: Welcome, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Questions for Corbett here in late March of 2022. Now, as you might imagine, I have received quite a few inquiries about cryptocurrencies over the years. And as you might also imagine, I have received many more inquiries about cryptocurrencies in recent weeks, given the craziness that we just saw unfold in Canada. So today, let's draw a representative example of one of those questions from the audience. Uh, Today, we're going to draw from the mailbag to answer an email from Cole, who writes, I still don't know much about digital currency and how it works, and I'm not very tech savvy. I'm going to keep using cash till I can't. I've I've watched your video on the Bitcoin PsyOp twice, and I'm about to watch it again. I just don't get this stuff. All right, thank you for the qu- the question or the implied question, Cole. Uh, as I say, you are definitely not alone out there in having difficulties wrapping your mind around this rather Byzantine subject, but you are also not the only one who is trying to do so. Um, so let me start and ground all of this discussion in, uh, with the base level of, I think, what is important to grasp here, which is that if you are not comfortable with cryptocurrency for whatever reason, on principle or because you dislike the technology involved or because you don't understand it and feel like you'll be easily scammed or ripped off or you don't want to go through the process of learning about wallets and what have you, that's fine. And I want to ground this answer in that base level of this and direct people back once again to episode 394 on Solutions Survival Currency, where I was careful to underline and stress that When we're talking about survival currency and you have your bank account suddenly frozen or whatever the case may be and you suddenly need to transact with people around you for your daily needs, uh, use whatever works for you and whatever you can understand and whatever you do have a community about. So whether that's cash or barter or trade or time banking or precious metals or whatever works for you, use it. So if you need a... a refresher on what the options of are uh, available for people who are looking for a survival currency and how they might go about setting up a community centered around that, please go back to episode 394 and re-watch that edition of the podcast. But having said that, if you do find yourself in a position where you are at least interested and potentially motivated to learn uh, something more about these cryptocurrencies that are suddenly everywhere and what is this? Bitcoin, blockchain, central bank, digital currency? I don't get this. What is it? Again, don't worry. You are not alone in that. And there's no time like the present to start if you are interested in learning about that. So um, having said that, let's cast our mind back to episode 413 of this podcast on Give, Send, Gone. You might remember that at that time I was talking about, obviously, the craziness that unfolded in Canada recently with the seizing of bank accounts for people who dared to commit the thought crime of trying to donate or raise funds for those evil pernicious truckers engaged in that evil political protest there in Ottawa and elsewhere. And at that time, I was noting a lot of the people who were in that exact situation, including, as you'll recall, Uh, Sean Jason of Druthers.net, who was interviewed by Dan Dix of Press for Truth about having his accounts seized um, for, again, for the crime of attempting to raise funds for the Freedom Convoy. And if you did go and not just watch that little clip that I played in episode 413, but watched the entire interview, you would have seen this exchange.
1: But have you considered looking into uh, cryptocurrencies as as a way to uh, uh, donate now? Now that you're being messed with by the financial institutions,
2: honestly, I haven't really thought much about that. Crypto is still this mysterious nothingness that I just don't understand. I've spent a lot of hours trying to wrap my head around it, and I mean, I kind of get it, sort of, but it's still they're just empty words. It's nothing. I don't understand it, and it feels to me that it's being all digital. They could just turn it off if they want. So how is that supportive? It's also, I feel crypto is stepping into the realm that they want us in. So I've been kind of personally resistant to doing crypto. So I haven't really considered that. if somebody can make it make sense to me, maybe I'd consider it, but at this point, I don't know, crypto just seems like a, a kind of a crazy way to go to me.
1: Okay, yeah, fair enough. I mean, uh, when I first started looking into it, I saw it as somewhat as a, as a potential Trojan horse for the cashless society and to kind of rope in the libertarian-minded people. But then when you learn a little bit about the decentralization nature of, of, of the blockchain, it starts to make a little more sense. But uh, I, th- I think that may be an interesting uh, avenue for you guys to take, considering you may continue to be a target in the future.
2: That is a possibility, but what happens if they just turn off the, the entire internet?
1: Well, if they flip the switch on the internet, I think the last thing you're going to be worrying about is your bank account. I mean, your uh, your your Bitcoin wallet. Uh, you'd probably be fending off the zombies at your front door with a shotgun if, if that happens. I, I don't put you know I'm not putting words in your mouth, but um, your Bitcoin wallet will probably be the last of your worries if they do pull the plug on the internet.
0: That is Dan Dix of pressretreat.ca talking to Sean Jason of druthers.net. And I think that conversation perfectly encapsulates almost every conversation that I've ever seen or taken part in with people in the real world or online who are crypto, not crypto inclined. Basically, it goes immediately to the end of the world scenario. <laughs> and if if they took down the internet, if a comet struck, if an EMP blast took down every electronic device on the planet, your Bitcoin wouldn't work then, would it? <laughs> no, you're right about that. Of course, the fact that 99% of humanity would probably be dead within a month. Might might be another pressing concern you'd have, <laughs> other than your digital wallet. But anyway, <laughs> I, I get where that's coming from. And I suppose it comes down to uh, something, a point that, again, I was stressing in the Solution Survival Currency podcast, is that people generally tend to think money is one thing and can only be this one thing in every all of your wealth has to be in this one form of money, so you better choose wisely which one form of money you put all of your wealth into. I don't think that's how it should work or does work, and I don't know of anyone who actually does propose that you literally take all of your amassed wealth on this planet and... Put it all into crypto and only trade in crypto for the rest of your life. That would be stupid. And I don't know of anyone advocating that. If anyone does advocate for that, you should run the opposite direction as quickly as possible because it sounds like a huckster. Um, No, of course not. But crypto might be a tool that might be useful um, for people, especially in emergency situations where their bank account is literally shut off. And just looking at the past month or so since the give-send-gone fiasco in Canada, Well, the internet is still here for now anyway, and electronic devices are still functioning. So for at least the past month, and oh yeah, I guess all of our lives up to this point, but certainly the past month, it would have been possible to trade in crypto during this time. Um, But is it? I thought, didn't I hear something about the government seizing Bitcoin or something? We'll get more into that later, but let's get down to the brass tacks, the root of the question that I think a lot of people start with when they're interested in crypto. As I say, if you're not interested in crypto, don't use it. That's fine. That's great. But for the people who are interested in dipping their toes in these waters, uh, you might want to learn about, well, okay, so what's going on here? How do I wrap my head around this? And let's take the basis for that question from Cole's email earlier. Uh, what, what is this Bitcoin PSYOP you're always referring to? I've watched the episode, I don't understand it. Well, for people who haven't yet watched the episode, I will wholeheartedly exhort you to go and watch, listen to, and or read the Bitcoin PSYOP so that you can understand the, the larger explanation here. But it boils down to a rather simple thesis, namely that the PSYOP in the Bitcoin PSYOP is to convince you to think that Bitcoin equals blockchain equals cryptocurrency, equals CBDC, that these are all just the same thing. They're all digital currency, right? That's, that's what that means. Blockchain means digital currency, means Bitcoin, means CBDC. They're all the same thing. And no, that is a psyop, that it, you are being led down that path to believe that, that all of these terms just allied and mushed together and there's no meaning to any of them. They're all just the same thing. Um, so that you can be essentially guided down a path towards the inevitable one coin to rule them all world of FedCoin, or whatever they're going to call it. And that that is the true nightmare scenario. So I think it does behoove us, at the very least, to understand that there is a difference between these terms. They are not all the same thing, and they are often used deceptively, sometimes by people who just genuinely do not know better, And I'm sure there's a lot of that that goes around. In fact, uh, the uh, Bitcoin wiki, which is obviously a bit biased in terms of its uh, Bitcoin position, but... It has a good a good note on its blockchain page, which says, Blockchain is touted as a magical fairy dust solution that you can sprinkle over a problem and end up with an amazing solution. ICOs have perfected this art, often combining it with other buzzwords like IOT and AI, and raised billions of dollars to deliver virtually nothing. If someone comes to you talking about a blockchain project, run if you don't know them. If you're a friend or family, explain to them that it's nonsense to use a blockchain without strong proof of work and an Adequately decentralized network of nodes. So, of course, they throw in the Bitcoin maximalism at the end there, but <laughs> at any rate, it is true. Blockchain is just this magic fairy dust buzzword that's thrown on things to make them sound cool and trendy. <laughs> when most of the time, when it is used in that contextless way, most of the time it is being used to sell you a bill of goods. Hey guys, this is blockchain based. And then when you look into it, it isn't really. So, again, we get back to the question, I think the fundamental question underlying all of these questions. What's a blockchain? Very good question. And there uh, there is no dearth of material that you can find online to help you answer that question, from the very basic to the very technical and detailed, from the mainstream normie-tailored t- stuff to the... crypto nerd tailored stuff to the conspiracy tailored stuff. All of that uh, exists out there, and I have no doubt you're perfectly capable of using a search engine to find out. But let's just start. Brass tacks, let's go to the bastion of truthiness, Wikipedia, just to get a basic definition. What is going on here? A blockchain is a growing list of records called blocks that are linked together using cryptography. Each block contains a cryptographic hash of the previous block, a timestamp, and transaction data, generally represented as a Merkle tree. The timestamp proves that the transaction data existed when the block was published to get into its hash. As blocks each contain information about the block previous to it, they form a chain, with each additional block reinforcing the ones before it. Therefore, blockchains are resistant to modification of their data because once recorded, the data in any given block cannot be altered retroactively without altering all subsequent blocks. Clear? Clear as mud? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure some people can have no problem following that and understanding what that means and its significance, but I think a lot of people will just see that as sort of a bunch of words. What does that mean? What? what uh, I think it helps perhaps to start at understanding why A blockchain even came about in the first place. What is the point of this? What is it being used for and in what way and how and for what purpose? And when I say that this stuff gets Byzantine, (laughs) I mean that literally.
3: Like most people, at first I found the whole thing to be very abstract and complicated, but now I've found a way of breaking it down so that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to get it. I'm going to explain it by using an ancient problem that Bitcoin claims to have solved. It's called the Byzantine General's Problem. And until now, it's been unsolvable. The problem goes like this. How do you make absolutely sure that multiple entities which are separated by distance are in absolute full agreement before an action is taken? In other words. How can individual parties find a way to guarantee full consensus? Here's the example. Imagine that you are a general in the Byzantine army and you're planning to attack an enemy city. You have the city surrounded by several battalions, each of them camped several miles from the other, and each of them led by another general. A coordinated attack on the city from all sides at the same time will be successful, but an uncoordinated attack will likely end in defeat. You have decided to attack at dawn, but you have no walkie-talkies or cell phones, and signals from flags, torches, or smoke could be seen by the enemy. How do you make sure with absolute certainty that all of the other generals reach consensus and all attack together at dawn? You could send messengers on horseback, but what if one of them is captured or killed before delivering the message? You would need to have a reply from each of your generals confirming that they have received your message, which means that they would have to send messengers to you on horseback, but what if they are captured or killed? What if a messenger is captured by the enemy, and an impostor messenger with a fake reply is sent back to you? And how do the other generals know that the messages that they received from you are genuine and haven't been intercepted and altered by the enemy worse yet what if some of the other generals are traitors and they send messages back to you confirming that they will attack at dawn when their true intention is to retreat how can you ever be absolutely certain that all of your battalions will reach consensus and attack simultaneously. Like I said, this problem has remained unsolved for thousands of years, and at its core, it's all about individual parties being able to trust each other directly, no strings attached. Bitcoin claims to have conquered this problem. Now imagine that the battalions are actually computers on a network, and that the generals are copies of a computer program running a ledger. A ledger that, via some very complex math, records transactions and events in the exact order that they happened. The key here is that all of these ledgers are exactly the same for everyone. As soon as a change is made on one copy of a ledger, if it is proven to be true by the math, All other copies of the ledger are updated to match. What we have here is a distributed ledger that is also always in consensus.
0: All right. Well, hopefully that goes at least part of the way towards defining the problem itself, which is an old problem from game theory circles, the Byzantine generals uh, problem. How do you get people who are separated to coordinate and achieve some sort of consensus on a, on a task or an event or recording of something when they can't even trust their, the messengers and they don't trust all of the participants involved. I don't know. How do you coordinate an action in that case? And although that does seem like one of those pie in the sky, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin type of philosophical problems, it has relevance to the field of distributed computing. So there is actually Uh, A nexus point in there. And if you are interested in this subject, then, boy, have I got some reading for you. Uh, I'll throw in a link to a computer science journal article that was written, I believe, in 1982 on this problem itself, about the Byzantine General's problem and how it relates to the concept of distributed computing. I will throw in an article on how does blockchain solve the Byzantine General's problem. But this all swirls around... The concept, the problem of distributed consensus. What is distributed consensus? Well, the computer science wiki would define it as a distributed consensus ensures a consensus of data among nodes in a distributed system or reaches an agreement on a proposal. A consensus algorithm may be defined as the mechanism through which a blockchain network reach consensus. Public decentralized blockchains are built as distributed systems And since they do not rely on a central authority, the distributed nodes need to agree on the validity of transactions. This is where consensus algorithms come into play. They assure that the protocol rules are being followed and guarantee that all transactions occur in a trustless way so the coins are only able to be spent once. Okay, hopefully, if you're following along, it's starting to make sense to you that in for example, if we're talking about a payment system, a monetary structure of some sort where there's a payment system that's being run, how can you do that without a central ledger, a central database? Of course, there have always been ledgers. In fact, it, the oldest extant written documents going back 5,000 years into recorded human history uh, are uh, include tallies of grain and and transactions and other such things, uh, of trying to keep records of uh, transactions that are being made. And of course, that has to be done by a bookkeeper in a central book. And yeah, there may be copies made of that book, but the copies may be unreliable or whatever. There could be problems, and those copies have to slavishly be updated whenever a new entry gets put into the the ledger. And that has to be kept by a single bookkeeper under, working under a single central authority, right? And of course, that transfers into the modern monetary paradigm where, of course, we all trust the trusted third party like Visa or World Economic Forum partner MasterCard. <laughs> They're going to be the ones who keep that central database of all of... Okay, here are all the accounts... Here are all the account holders, their names, their, their information, their data, their address. And here's their credit limit. They have a credit limit of $3,000 and they've used $2,700. And here comes a transaction for $500. Well, we're not going to approve that transaction. Oh, here comes a transaction for $100. Okay, and we'll, we'll approve that and, and, and distribute those funds. So, of course, that has to be done centrally, right? There has to be a single central bookkeeping agent that keeps track of that. How could you do that in a decentralized system where there is no one trusted party that says, yes, this person has $100 to spend or no, this person does not have $100 to spend? In monetary circles, it's the double spending problem whereby, okay, if you don't have a single central record keeping track of all transactions, then someone could spend... Uh, a a monetary instrument, a coin, for example, could spend it in one transaction and uh, another ledger over here doesn't have that transaction noted down so that coin could be available to be spent again. So in some sort of digital distributed network, how are you going to be able to keep track of which coins are available and by whom and who are they owned by and where are they going? How can you keep track of that information? So that was the problem that the original Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, back in 2008, purported to solve. And this is the white paper that I would recommend if you are interested in getting into the the nuts and bolts of this, probably a good place to start. It is only nine pages long, so it is not a voluminous read, but it is a bit technical, so get your thinking cap on if you are inclined. But anyway, just reading from the introduction, uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote, commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. While the system works well enough for most transactions, it still suffers from the inherent weaknesses of the trust-based model. Completely non-reversible transactions are not really possible since financial institutions cannot avoid mediating disputes. The cost of mediation increases transaction costs, limiting the minimum practical transaction size and cutting off the possibility for small causal transactions. And there is a broader cost in the loss of ability to make non-reversible payments for non-reversible services. With the possibility of reversal, the need for trust spreads. Merchants must be wary of their customers, hassling them for more information than they would otherwise need. A certain percentage of fraud is accepted as unavoidable. These costs and payment uncertainties can be avoided in person by using physical currency, but no mechanism exists to make payments over a communications channel without a trusted party. What is needed is an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof instead of trust, allowing any two willing parties to transact directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. Transactions that are computationally impractical to reverse would protect sellers from fraud, and routine escrow mechanisms could easily be, be implemented to protect buyers." In this paper, we propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer distributed timestamp server to generate computational proof of the chronological order of transactions. So that is the seemingly humble task which was uh, set out back in 2008-2009 when the Bitcoin network started to take shape. And uh, as I say, in nine pages, this very old problem is solved? Question mark. Well, at any rate, it uh, is still functioning today as the blockchain underlying the Bitcoin blockchain, which is a specific type of blockchain that is being used. It has a specific protocol and specific rules which are followed on that particular blockchain, but there are many possible blockchains, and you can change those rules and do different things. Unless you're a Bitcoin maximalist, in which case there's only one blockchain and it's the Bitcoin blockchain. <laughs> but we won't get into that here. But I, again, I hope you're starting to get the point of what this is, why it's important, and I, I guess what we're arriving at, because I think most people who are asking about this probably aren't interested in the actual, real technical details of how this system works and what, you know, the the, the cryptographic functions that are being used and proof of work versus proof of stake. It's all fascinating if you're into that, but. That's like knowing the exact way that the your transactions are routed through Visa's processing servers and then back to the seller and then how they're approved and things. I, does anyone follow that kind of Byzantine sort of uh, details of how the system works? No, you just want to swipe your card and be done, right? And know that, oh, it's okay. It's good as gold. Visa and, or Amex or MasterCard are approving this transaction. They got the technology all worked out. Whatever. <laughs> Right? But people aren't... So I think that's probably not what people are really interested in. As I say, I will include all those links to all that stuff if you are. And if you are, great. Dive in. There's a lot to explore. But I think what we're really getting at with these types of conversations is essentially the deeper, deeper underlying question, which is, are are all blockchains tools of digital enslavement? <laughs> and that... Now that's a good question. Um, I, I guess... One way to answer that is to say that, in a sense, blockchain is nothing essentially new. There's nothing new under the sun, and blockchain isn't an essentially new thing insofar as it represents a ledger. It's a distributed ledger and a peer-to-peer decentralized network, which is the new part of it. But it's essentially, it's a ledger. And ledgers, as I say, are not new. Going back thousands and thousands of years, we have recorded examples of ledgers. Some of the earliest known writings in human history were ledgers, just keeping tallies of things and recording transactions and events. So that's not particularly new. So when you hear blockchain being touted in some way or blockchain as some sort of you know evil thing or whatever it is in a decontextualized way, just as a word, it's, it's more of a talisman, I think it is generally just being used as either new and cool or new and scary or whatever it is. It's not actually probably referring to what a blockchain really is. It's not really referring to a distributed ne- uh, peer-to-peer network of ledger. No, they're, they're using it as a talisman. So a good test might be to see if you can take the word blockchain, the way that it's being used in the context that it's being used and swap out the word database, and there's no difference, then that's a good tell that they're not really talking about blockchain technology. They're just talking about ledgers or databases. This is a fact or a point that you will remember that Andreas Antonopoulos made in one of the clips that I played in the Bitcoin psyop. And so you get into this very strange world where the words no longer mean anything. Can you define blockchain for me? I think a few people in this room could probably define blockchain, but the real challenge would be, can you define blockchain in such a way that I can't do search and replace with the word database, and still make that sentence work? Because that's the challenge. If what you're doing is a database with signatures, it's not interesting. It's boring. point taken. So perhaps a good first question to ask when someone is presenting you with the specter of a blockchain project, either as some wonderful, cool, new, whiz-bangy thing that they're trying to sell you on, or as some oogie-boogie thing that they're trying to scare you about, the question, the first order question to ask may be something along the lines of, is this just a database with signatures? Because if so, it's, it's boring. It's, not really a blockchain at all. It's not a peer-to-peer distributed permissionless network for uh, achieving consensus uh, in a ledger. No, it's just a database, right? A database by another name, which essentially at the bottom, that's what a blockchain is, is sort of database. It's just a different way of doing a database, one that doesn't require a t- trusted central third party authority to come in and regulate the transactions and things that are happening in that ledger. Um, So I guess the primary question then really becomes not, are blockchains evil, but are ledgers inherently evil? (laughs) And the answer may may be, maybe, maybe, yes, maybe they are. Um, Remember, for example, remember back in episode 415 on the global digital ID prison, we were taking a look at the first blockchain baby. Remember, we looked at that. Article from the World Economic Forum. A billion people have no legal identity, but a new app plans to change that. Talking about Joseph Thompson's digital app, which allows people to prove and protect their identity. Aid Tech has created a digital app that allows people without official documents to create a personal legal identity. Yay. And Thompson's app uses blockchain to preserve the user's digital identity from interference, making it accessible only to the person whose ID it holds. As a digital solution, it goes with the grain of how many people in emerging economies manage their finances using smartphones. And by making the transactions digital, not only can charities see that donations reach their intended recipients, but by using blockchain, the whole system is much more secure than sending cash. And then we got to the point where it raised the specter of the first blockchain baby. And it says, uh, that's when Thompson's thoughts turned to helping Solve the problem of people with no legal ID. One of the issues they face is registering the birth of a child. Women without legal ID face particular obstacles where laws require the father's ID to be used when a birth is registered. We've got projects in Tanzania where we had the first baby in the world born on the blockchain, says Thompson. The mother who gave birth, she owned the data for the child, so she was building a data credit profile. She could prove she got the right medicine. All right, as as I pointed out in 415, that... There's a lot of creepy things to point out about the nature of that. But I guess the question is, is it the blockchain nature of that that's creepy? Or is it the databasing of the human life that is creepy? I mean, what, where, wh- what is the distinction? Where do we draw that line? If we are inherently unnerved and incensed about the first blockchain baby and understand it as a, a link in the chain to the digital enslavement of mankind, why are we not equally incensed about the first databased baby? in history, or the first baby to be recorded on a cuneiform tablet thousands of years ago, is that not in and of itself also inherently creepy and evil? Well, it's not, it doesn't seem so viscerally creepy, does it? It's something about digital and blockchain that is, ooh, that's particularly creepy. And maybe there is something to that. Maybe there is something about digital or computer databases that are that much more inherently uniquely evil. At any rate, that is something that has been noted, not just in our present day and age, but going back to the birth of the computer networks that eventually became what became the Internet, um, going back to the 1960s. And you can find out more about that from Yasha Levine's book on Surveillance Valley, which I've talked about before, but I'll just read a little part from that, talking about the uh, student protest movement in the 1960s that arose uh, in protest of the database projects that were being worked on uh, in the bowels of MIT and uh, associated uh, academic institutions at that time, Uh, students saw Cambridge project and the bigger ARPANET that plugged into it as a weapon. A pamphlet handed out at the MIT protest explained, the whole computer setup and the ARPA computer network will enable the government for the first time to consult relevant survey data rapidly enough to be used in policy decisions. The net result of this will be to make Washington's international policemen more effective in suppressing popular movements around the world. The so-called basic research to be supported by project CAM will deal with questions like why do peasant movements or student groups become revolutionary? The results of this research will similarly be used to suppress progressive movements. Another booklet featured a mock advertisement that gave a visual representation to these fears. It featured... The Octoputer, a computer shaped like an octopus that had tentacles reaching into every sector of society. The Octoputer's arms are long and strong, read the mock ad copy. It sits in the middle of your university, country, and reaches helping hands out in all directions. Suddenly, your empire works harder. More of your agents use the computer, solving more problems, finding more facts. All right, well, the concern is not misplaced, certainly. Uh... I- I guess if we're getting to the point that, yes, the databasing and the, the the cataloging and the tracing and the tracking is the inherent evil, computers just make that more efficient and effective. Well, then yes, then it is a problem, absolutely. So that there, there is that aspect to it. But I would say that's a difference of degree rather than a difference in kind, right? Um, but I guess we could just say it's just the technology, just the fact that technology is involved in this, that it is inherently unnerving. Although, really, writing instruments and paper and what have you are technologies. Very crude, very, very, very old technologies, but they are technologies. But maybe that sounds like a quibbling distinction. All right, so it's the technology, the electronic technology, that makes it disturbing. Databasing and cataloging is fine, as long as it's done pen and paper. But okay, so why stop at computers? And why not telephones? Maybe telephone networks are the real key. That's when the telephone was developed, that was when the evil networks started to really gain power. And you could probably r- draw up a chart that shows the influence of, of of secret society networks and their ability to operate internationally in conjunction with the rise of telephone networks. And so maybe the, maybe the telephone is the root of all evil. And did you know I have it on good authority that everyone at, at Microsoft and everyone at, in the US government and everyone at the World Economic Forum and everyone at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and everyone at BlackRock and Vanguard and any anything else you can think of, they all have telephones. See? I knew it. So it's the telephone that is the evil. I mean, we could make that, and I I'm still researching about the Bilderberg members. I haven't haven't tracked them all down and whether they have telephones, but But more seriously, yes, blockchains that are actually used as blockchains may not even be actually effective tools of control. And that that's an interesting little wrench in people's thinking about this that uh, that you can see, for example, in a recent report on India's digital rupee because, of course, the the Reserve Bank of India is working on a CBDC, as is pretty much every other central bank in the world right now. They're all at different stages of it, essentially. Um, But India's digital rupee may not necessarily be on the blockchain, according to the country's central bank. So yes, here's an example of a central bank digital currency that may not even be blockchain-based. So is it good (laughs) because it's not blockchain? (laughs) Uh, If you want to Get into the details of that. Uh, The report notes that India's finance minister, Nirmala Siddharaman, announced that the central bank will be ready to launch its blockchain-based central bank digital currency, the digital rupee, before March 2023. However... The Reserve Bank of India's executive director T. Rabi Sankar clarified on Thursday that the central bank is also open to other technologies. And this report goes on to say, what are the alternatives to blockchain? Blockchains are only one type of distributed ledger technology. In most cases, it is considered to be a permissionless platform. But for the central bank to remain in control of the digital rupee and the notion that most banks would like to prevent their competitors from peeking at their liquidity strategies it would need a permissioned system for its upcoming cbdc so what they're essentially pointing out here is that the permissioned versus permissionless is is actually an important distinction and if that is as some people would posit, a real distinction between what makes a blockchain a blockchain versus what makes it essentially a database with signatures, well then, yes, maybe the blockchain is not what the tyrants actually want to use for at least some of their tools of control. Can blockchains, permissionless blockchains, be used in nefarious ways? Absolutely, no doubt about it. But sometimes, no, they would prefer to have essentially a database with signatures. They want the old-fashioned kind of databases, the ones that are closed with the trusted third-party authority in the middle, not this open distributed permissionless network thing. No, 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 not distributed. So again, these these types of distinctions and what a blockchain even is really do start to become important as to whether and how and in what way they can or cannot be used as tools of control, in what circumstances relative to what events, etc. So uh, this raises another question that gets brought up in these turbulent times, monetary times that we're in right now. Can't the government just come in and seize your wallet and your access to your digital money in just one fell swoop? Don't they just have to, you know, sign an order and you're, Money is gone, right? They seized a bunch of Bitcoin from the truckers, didn't they? Hmm. Well, let's examine that claim a little bit more. Let's turn to a report that was posted up on Zero Hedge just a couple of weeks ago. No, Canada did not seize any crypto wallets connected with the Freedom Convoy. Here's why. So it goes into this report or at least the seeming report that came out about this seizing of funds it says i'm seeing references and hearing anecdotally how the canadian government froze or even seized crypto wallets associated with the freedom convoy fundraising efforts including the sensational headline from fortune magazine's fed up ottawa residents win secret suit to freeze the crypto wallets funding canada's freedom convoy protesters fed up residents secret suit freedom convoy protesters in square scare quotes oh my The article refers to a Mareva injunction issued by the Ontario Superior Court. It orders that 134 crypto wallets be frozen such that nobody remotely involved with them can can basically move or cause to be moved any of the funds in those wallets. Further, it orders that any wallet that receives funds from any of these wallets also be frozen. Technically, that means if somebody were to move a single Satoshi to Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, Bitbuy, etc., then the receiving hot wallets of those exchanges are technically frozen as well. This isn't really tenable, and this issue has actually come up before within the context of Bitcoin mining and OFAC compliance. There was a time when Marathon Digital actually tried to create an initiative where they would only mine fully AML and OFAC-compliant-derived blocks. This would have essentially required the censoring of Bitcoin transactions and was widely scorned by the industry. It proved itself to be unworkable with Marathon scrapping the program almost immediately. Trying to enforce a taint chain on specific crypto addresses would run into similar problems to the point where the choice would simply be to shut down Bitcoin entirely, not possible, or give up. And this report goes on to talk about the reality. The order also says... Any other person who knows of this order and does anything which helps or permits the defendant to breach the terms of this order may also be held to be in contempt of court and may be fined or imprisoned. Let's stress for the record that we are not advising nor condoning anyone subject to the order to violate it, but should preferably at this stage contest it in court. The simple reality which we'd argue is protected as free speech is this. No government can actually seize or freeze anything stored in any self-custody wallet, full stop. In fact, nobody can actually help or permit the defendants to breach the terms of the order because only those who hold the private keys to the specified wallets are in a position to do so. The courts can issue orders and the government can issue decrees forbidding any entity under their jurisdiction from allowing transfers into or out of those addresses. That's what they mean by freezing wallets. But the reality is that none of these wallets are actually frozen, not in the same sense of when a bank freezes your account. I would argue that the more accurate way to describe those wallets would be as restricted, not frozen. In crypto, those wallet holders can still move those Bitcoin to any other BTC address, but probably not one that has already been created and in a Fintrack-regulated exchange. Most of the news items mention 34 or these 134 or sometimes 200-plus crypto addresses, but there are a possible a huge big number that I can't read, BTC addresses, enough for every individual inhabitant of earth to have another huge big number that I can't read, addresses for their own use. But some say Bitcoin is not anonymous, the ledger is trackable, which is true, at least as long as a given asset stays on the same chain. What I usually say about this hits upon one of my favorite aspects of Bitcoin. It may be true that funds can be tracked through the blockchain, but there isn't a damn thing anybody can do about it. And further, there is an entire universe, a cryptoverse, that is constructed of innumerable nodes and entities that don't even reside within Cartesian reality, (laughs) let alone the legal jurisdiction of the Ontario Superior Court. Uh, And it goes on to, within this cryptoverse, these nodes can take the form of non-Fintrack-regulated exchanges, decentralized exchanges, exchanges, peer-to-peer exchanges... Alternate layer one blockchains, layer two protocols and wrapped assets, decentralized finance apps, automated market makers and liquidity protocols, bridges between any and all of these. There's nothing anybody can do about the explosion in number and complexity of all these crypto things. And attempts to similarly freeze, seize, or shut down every address traversed of some asset you're trying to trace through all of this would mean somehow taking control over centralized exchanges, some of them very large with legal teams in other countries, or decentralized entities some which don't effectively possess legal personhood but are some sort of decentralized autonomous organization etc etc again please go do and read through this and follow links and read more about this but i think the underlying point here is that yes Governments can write whatever decrees they want, but that doesn't make that thing into a reality. And they can say that they have seized this Bitcoin or that nobody can use this Bitcoin. But that's not true. (laughs) Actually, you can use that Bitcoin. Now anything that comes under the jurisdiction of that Ontario Superior Court, like a centralized exchange that is registered as a legal entity with the Canadian government and is uh, regulated by FinTrack and uh, has to comply with know-your-customer regulations for each of its account holders and all of that, is essentially, like a Visa or a MasterCard or any other controlled centralized authority, working as a central, trusted third-party intermediator and thus, again, isn't really what cryptocurrency is about, right? That isn't what cryptocurrency is. It's just a form that is taken to achieve legal compliance. So it's all legit and you can write it on your tax forms and don't worry, the government won't come after you. Uh, they might seize your assets if they if you commit a thought crime, but seize as in they stop the regulated exchanges from exchanging them. But this is why if you use crypto and as they say, not your keys, not your coin, if you are not using a self-custodial or non-custodial wallet, then you're not really using crypto properly. And if you are interacting with crypto in a way that uses any sort of KYC, know your customer compliance sort of testing, you got to send in your passport and your photo and blood sample and I don't know, sperm sample or whatever else they're going to ask for. If, if you're doing that, then, well, I, I won't say you're doing it wrong. You're just doing it that way, which will, of course, be subject to all of the government restrictions. But this is fundamentally, could be something else, couldn't it? Right? It could, could be whatever it is. And a non-custodial, self-custodial wallet is the key to all of that. Uh, there's nothing that anyone can do to stop you from using that wallet uh, in a transaction with another self-custodial wallet somewhere, you know, in that blockchain network, whatever that may be, Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency. And each one has its own protocols and rules and what have you, so they're different things. Which, I guess, gets to what the real starting point might be for people who are actually interested in using cryptocurrency rather than studying the the technical details of all of this or the philosophical ruminations. If you actually want to use cryptocurrency, this is where I think you should really, really start to really get a handle on it before you start going into it if you are going to say, okay, I'm going to sign up for this, whatever, centralized Coinbase or whatever it is, and here, I'll send them my ID and and I'll sign up as a customer, and then, of course, you're just, I mean, yeah, okay, it's like uh, having a Visa or MasterCard account or something like that, or opening an account at a major bank. Yeah, it's the same thing, and you'll be regulated in the same way by the governments in the same way that they do the regular banking system, and It's essentially no different. Maybe it's just easier for this or that transaction, but it's not really crypto, using crypto. So if you want, you have to understand how to start a non-custodial wallet. Now, I will point people to a resource along those lines that I saw crop up recently that I think might be a good starting point for people. It is John Bush uh, from John Bush Live Free Now, who had a a video recently, how non-custodial crypto wallets and P2P exchanges can overcome Trudeau's currency controls. And he goes through in an hour and a half and uh, shows you the setting up of a non-custodial wallet and what that means and things along those lines. I think there's probably a Solutions Watch episode or 10 in there (laughs) that we could probably break things down if people are interested in learning more about the steps of how to do this and what this means and how crypto can be used in a way that is, uh, shall we say, less susceptible to the Ontario Superior Court orders. But... Having said all of that, I just want to, at at the very least, to clarify what the Bitcoin PSYOP is and to say that at least if we understand that there are different, that a blockchain is a certain thing and Bitcoin is a different thing. It is a certain type of blockchain-based network slash currency that operates given a certain protocol instead of rules, but here's a different blockchain that that operates on a different protocol with different rules. A blockchain is a more fundamental concept, and different things are built on top of that, or sometimes it's just a database with signatures. And then there's central bank digital currencies, which could be blockchain based, but may not actually be blockchain based. That might not be in the interest of the central bankers. So there's a lot to talk about here, as you can see, and as always, there will be links galore. Uh, so please follow the show notes for if you want to start exploring these subjects. But at the very least, I think it might be a good idea for people to understand a little bit about this, these subjects and sort of the roots of what even is. What is cryptocurrency? What is blockchain? What is Bitcoin? In order to start having a, a more intelligent conversation about them. As I've said, and as I will continue to say, if you want nothing whatsoever to do with it and never want to even look at the concept of digital currency in any form then I hope you don't have a bank account because, of course, every time you uh, put money in or take money out, even if you're putting cash in and taking cash out, there's still the centralized database ledger being kept of all of those transactions, right? And, of course, uh, every time you... I mean, I'm assuming most people don't get paid in cash these days by their employers. It's probably being electronically deposited in your bank account. And you probably have a credit card and might have some sort of other loyalty cards and things. Chances are you probably use electronic payments, so... If you don't, great. And I don't know how you're listening to my voice. (laughs) If you don't have a device that's uh, connected to the distributed uh, network known as the internet, (laughs) I don't know how you're even getting this. But at any rate, good on you. And I fully support that decision. And whatever works for you, great. Do it. But for people who are interested in cryptocurrency, there is a lot to explore. And, uh, well, let me know uh, if you are interested in me exploring more of this in Solutions Watch and Questions for Corbett. At any rate, this is another way of hoping to broach this subject and introduce it to people. And as I say, there will be lots of links in the show notes. But that's going to do it for today. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me and looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.